knowledge of the emerging digital health space. I'm MedTech Insights Managing Editor Marion Webb, and with me today is our Washington-based reporter Hannah Daniel and our commercial team manager Reed Miller. So Hannah, let's start with you. You attended the MedTech conference in Anaheim, California just a few weeks ago, and you were able to speak to the Deputy Director of the Digital Health Center, Sonia Fulmer. What did you talk to her about? That's right, Marianne. Thank you. So Sonia and I spoke about predetermined change control plans or PCCPs, which are these plans included in pre-market submissions that describe any minor future changes a company plans to make to a device to keep it safe and effective. If approved, these PCCPs allow manufacturers to update their devices efficiently without having to submit an entirely new 510K each time they need to tweak something. So the omnibus legislation passed at the end of December allowed the FDA to approve PCCPs, and that means that there are already some being approved by the FDA. But that also means that there's inconsistency between reviewers. And and someone who spoke during a panel on PCCPs said this about her company's experience. Um, Sonia told me that comprehensive training will be included in both the final guidance for PCCPs for AI and ML devices, which a draft came out for this earlier this year, and a draft guidance on PCCPs for all medical devices will also include training, and both of these are scheduled for the fiscal year 2024. She also told me that there are liaisons um, as a part of the Digital Health Focal Point Program in each office in the Center for Devices and Radiological Health that serve as PCC experts for reviewers that have questions. And then continuing on the topic of AI and ML devices, I also attended a webinar hosted by the Alliance for Stronger FDA with Mira Jacobs, Acting Assistant Director of the Digital Health Center of Excellence. She talked about post-market surveillance of AI and ML devices, which continues to challenge regulators. So for some context, most of the AI and ML devices on the market were actually approved after 2019, which means that we don't have a lot of data on post-market performance. She said that the FDA has, quote, a large amount of insight on pre-market in terms of safety and effectiveness, but not so much of a, quote, pulse on the long-term monitoring of how these devices are functioning. Great, Hannah. Thank you so much for that overview. Now, Reed, let's go over to you. You were part of a press event sponsored by EY to talk about the state of the medtech industry overall and how digital health will play an important role in the future. What did you learn from that? Yeah, that's right. So Ernst & Young, um, it's a consultancy that likes to be called EY, uh, put out their 17th annual Pulse of the Industry report about medtech. And two of the leaders of that group that wrote it, uh, Jim Welsh and John Babbitt from EY, did a Zoom call for a bunch of reporters just to talk about the report and talk about what's going on with medtech. Uh, Babbitt also covered a lot of that same material in a panel that I was at in, in Boston at the LSX conference. So one of the big stories from this is just confirmation of what everybody else has, has generally noticed. Uh, investment in medtech has declined in 2022 and into the first half of 2023 compared to 2020 and, and 2021, uh, where there was a lot going on because of COVID. So, so total revenue for the entire medtech industry reached $573 billion in 2022. That represents just 3.5% growth. And that's a rapid deceleration from the 16% growth year over year that we saw in 2021. 
It also represents the smallest growth for the industry since 2015. Also, the public valuations for publicly traded medtech companies have fallen as their revenue growth has slowed. And as we addressed in some of our coverage of the LSX meeting from a few weeks ago, venture capital investment in medtech is down this year, as is M&A activity. If not for the big J&J Abiomed deal, which we reported on, of course, the M&A numbers would have been the slowest they've been in about 10 years. So there are a bunch of reasons for all this that we've written about, of course, um, global inflation, you know, geopolitical upheavals with wars in Europe and the Middle East. There are continued supply chain disruptions that were caused mostly by the pandemic and have continued. There's questions about the regulatory environment, especially in Europe, um, et cetera, et cetera. So what will the industry do about all that? Yeah, so most of the EY report is about how industry should be adopting digital technology to create a so-called intelligent health system, which will be a smart, connected, personalized, patient-centered healthcare model for the future. That's the way they explained it. So that would include the full range of connected care and remote monitoring systems that we have been hearing a lot about, especially since the dawn of the pandemic, and about all these AI innovations that can help process all this data that is created by all this connected care. And of course, a lot of that's going to be outside of traditional hospitals and outpatient settings and ambulatory care facilities, uh, hopefully also in the patient's home. Um, the report includes a lot of examples of how big companies like GE Healthcare and Philips are trying to make that happen. So we should expect there to be a, a lot of consolidation in the industry to drive all of those connections? Yeah, it would seem like that. And, um, you know, we wrote about a couple a couple of years ago that there were big companies buying a lot of these connected uh, care, smaller companies. But that was an interesting comment from John Babbitt. And he said that EY's research has shown that the big blockbuster deals, so big companies buying other big companies, uh, don't usually work out for the shareholders. And so instead, he he sees uh, that there'll probably be more spinoff deals like we've seen in recent years. For example, J&J just got out of consumer health. They spun that off. Um, 3M is planning to get out of healthcare altogether. Medtronic is divesting respiratory and patient monitoring. Uh, you know, as we wrote about recently, it's unclear what form that divestiture will take, but that's going to happen. They're going to get out of it. There's always been speculation that Medtronic might sell off its diabetes business, um, although that's not as uh, clear as it used to be, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like a lot of these companies that thought that, oh, you know, we need to have all these different um, businesses in our in our big umbrella, but Often, sometimes, you know, sectors do better on their own, um, apart from their giant parents. So it's going to be interesting to see how that trend uh, continues, you know, creates tension uh, with the need for every conceivable device and system to be able to talk to one another. I mean, that's the whole idea. Um, and so it would seem like, oh, yeah, we'll just make sure they're all made by the same company and we can coordinate that. But if it doesn't actually make sense from a commercial standpoint to, to market it that way, then they're going to see more spinoffs. Um, and I think we're just kind of a long way from all of this happening anyway. You know, we have electronic health records, for example, but as I've noticed recently, for most normal people, it's still often difficult just to get patient records from one hospital system to another. You know, sometimes people are still using fax machines and so forth. So there's a lot of that to sort out uh, in terms of the day-to-day -day detail. You also talked to EY about digital therapeutics specifically. What can you tell us about that conversation? Yeah, so I just uh, wanted to ask them what they thought about that since we've written so much about it. So I had the chance to talk to the guys from EY about digital therapeutics in particular because they have such a big picture view of 
of where all this is going in terms of the advancement of health technology. So I asked them how they see the digital therapeutic space evolving. Now, as we've seen, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of money put into those. Um, and as we've also covered, a lot of those investments have not really paid off. Of course, we wrote about how Pair just gave up. Um, and a lot of the other ones that went public, they've never got their stock price back to where it initially was. So the EY uh, message on that was that we should expect the companies that succeed in that space will be the ones that can actually help physicians make better decisions rather than the ones that just have an app or or some other therapeutic that just add another kind of therapy on top of the therapy they're already getting. So just an app on top of drug therapy or counseling or whatever else the patient is already doing, they're not going to move the needle as much as something that actually changes how the, the physician delivers the care. And, and that makes a lot of sense just based on what we're seeing so far because the payers um, have just not shown a ton of enthusiasm for some of these digital therapeutics that we've looked at. And I'm sure there'd be a lot more interest in them if they can show they actually can save money by helping doctors make the better decisions and improve care that way, or keep people out of the hospital or or whatever it is that's going to save money. Thank you, Reed, for that overview on EY's new report. Okay, Marianne, so let's talk to you about your story on the rise of AI solutions like ChatGPT in behavioral health clinics. You know, you interviewed several people about that. Yes, thanks, Reed. So as we know, there is great concern about the rising shortage of physicians, nurses, and other health professionals, and overall in healthcare, and that's also the case in behavioral health. Now, AI solutions like ChatGPT are increasingly being talked about as helping ease the administrative burden of clinicians and also help with the pressure of working staff shortages. I spoke with Nathan Strack, who is the founder of the consulting firm Reimagine Consulting, which is located in the Bay Area. He advises behavioral health clinics in particular and said that he sees a lot of investment flowing toward AI solutions to help clinicians who are dealing with tremendous pressures at work. And that's considering that we have a rising mental health crisis in this country to begin with. Yeah. So I would think that during the pandemic, uh, when we saw so many different telehealth companies providing virtual consultations and services to meet the demand of mental health services, um, is that still going on? Is that crisis continuing? According to 2021 data from the National Institute of Mental Health, 57.8 million U.S. adults or more than one in five live with a mental illness and young people aged 18 to 25 have the highest prevalence of mental illness. So that's a very high statistic. So where do these AI solutions come into that? For now, mostly on the back end. So to give an example, several clinics are adopting or have already adopted ambient listening technology that uses advanced voice-enabled AI to automatically document a conversation during a patient-clinician conversation. So clearly the patient would have to consent to this when you're having a private conversation with your clinician, but there are several companies out there that are already using this type of technology. Teladoc, which is the largest telehealth company, announced in July it would adopt Microsoft's Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, which is just one of the many companies offering this type of software to exactly do those uh, that type of recording. Now, Teladoc obviously is a huge company with vast resources and money to invest. 
not all clinics will be able to make that kind of investment. I did speak with uh, Dr. Hilary Tamar, who is the medical director for the Eastern Territory of Community Medical Services, and they provide medication-assisted treatment for people with opioid disorder in particular. She also believes that this type of technology would be beneficial in helping cut the administrative burden of their clinicians. And she believes that it would benefit the physician-patient interaction because it would allow clinicians to have that eye-to-eye conversation rather than having to type while you're talking to the patient during a, a therapy session. Now, Strack also believes that using generative AI like ChatGPT could be very useful for using things like sifting through vast amounts of documentation to help generate specific information at warp speed, like billing rules. He said that ChatGPT can take all of that information and make it searchable in a way that just simply wasn't possible before. And as a result, save clinicians a lot of time. Okay, so many clinicians are concerned that they will be replaced by AI. Uh, Solutions like chatbots, is that a concern here? When it comes to therapy sessions, there are chatbots out there that provide mental health services. But everyone I've spoken with and studies have also shown that they are very limited, especially when it comes to providing therapy. They are easily accessible oftentimes more affordable than human therapists and allow people to remain anonymous. Those are the benefits. But there is great concern that when someone is truly in a crisis, these chatbots simply lack the human capability to understand when someone is in crisis mode, or as Dr. Tamar puts it, unable to shift on the fly and handle the emergency like a human can. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Okay, well, that wraps up yet another recap of MedTech Insights digital health coverage. Thank you for listening and have a great rest of your week.